Spread the fire fam, welcome back to SMWX, the Seasweb Wolf Welsh experience. In this episode, we speak about this brilliant book, The Economy on Your Doorstep by Ayabonga Kawe. We delve into economic questions, rap, consumption, and what it means to write a book as a young South African. Hope you enjoy this fascinating episode. Let's get started. Ayayi. So, bro, this is uh, an important book. It's it's a book that is also well written. So, I want to get into some questions about craft as well as the, as the substance. Um, but first, the the first part of this book is about overcoming what you call the native reserve. That's the the largest part. That's the first part, and you really set up a kind of frame through which you view the economy and the interventions that are needed. So. In a nutshell, can you take us through why you kind of went back to go forward and why you think this idea of the native reserve is still important for present-day South Africa? Political economy became something very important to try and understand, you know, who I am, where I came from, and the economic reality of, the, of those places that I've uh, experienced and interacted with. Um, so in a sense, you know, this book is really about places I know, places I grew up around, um, and using those as an entry point to a systemic inquiry about not only the economic evolution of those places, but also the life processes that are embedded in that economic and social change. And I think the native reserve is an important one. I mean, a lot of people were saying to me, well, why do you only talk about the homelands? And I say, the concept of the native reserve goes beyond the homeland. Because if you think about even in the urban context, in places like uh, Cape Town and East London. Uh, when you get to Tanzania, it's, it's you know, say NU1 or say NU13. That is a native unit. So, so, so the, the method of creating these compounds of concentration for African people as p spaces where they go only to rest and to wake up again and work for industry, this temporary life, um, this temporary citizenship in the urban space is a replica of what the homeland experiment and the balkanization of South Africa had already started to do in the rural areas. And so in a sense, I draw this relational link because our lives work like that way. You know, I come from a village, um, you know, on your way to Dordrecht, it's part of the sort of Lady Freire area. And it's a matter of course, traditionally every generation at a certain age, you go to Johannesburg or Cape Town. So in a sense, the sociological existence of those people creates that relational link between the urban and the rural in very meaningful ways for capital accumulation in South Africa. So that's my starting point. And that's why I want to understand the economy on my doorstep as a window and an entry point into a more systemic inquiry around how we resolve what I call uh, you know, the messy tasks of the South African revolution. And those messy tasks are primarily, in this phase of that revolution, economic. Um, and for you to, to start to understand those, you can't understand them without understanding the unfolding of the late 19th century and 20th century South Africa and the interface between politics and the kind of economy that emerges and the role of these people that have been placed in the wastelands of, of, of the South African experiment and, and, and how their lives unfold even now in the contemporary period. So, and also I think for me, I mean, you know, I, 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 I can't, I hate to say it like this, but, but I don't think 
people who are engaged in economic inquiry should do what the profession has done in the 20th century, which is to create this idea that you're the bell of the social sciences. You, you, you can't learn without really, I guess, trying to colonize other parts of the social sciences. And so in a sense for me, um, you know, understanding of history is as important to economic inquiry now um, and what that translates to in broadcasting, in, in policy spaces, and, and, and beyond that. So, so I go backwards to try and understand where I am now and you know, what the future might look like. But it's a critical part of my toolkit as an economist to also be a student of history. Because I don't think if you, if you are really interested in making sure that you are an economist who's of value to your people, uh, that you can do that without interrogating and having a very intimate understanding of their history. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because on the one hand, what you're doing is you're going back and forth in time. You're going back to show us where we are and, and where we should go. But I also felt that the work was interesting in that it was at different scales. So it's the economy on your doorstep. So you're, you're, you're really taking people into how this economy affects your life on a day-to-day -day basis right now. But then you zoom out quite a lot as well and reflect on broad economic trends. Um, and so I'm interested in how this, how did the idea for this book happen? Because it's an, it's, it's, it's an unconventional economic book in that it's, it's, it's moving through time and it's moving through scales. It's, 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 it's interesting because I, this is not a book that I thought of writing. Um, I got a call from you know, a certain publisher who was like, look, we're really interested. We've seen some of the work that you write, um, much shorter pieces, of course. Um, and we'd really like to see if you're considering writing a book. Um, and I said to them, yeah, sure, you know. Um, and I think three months after I spoke to them, only then did I start to think about writing this book. And I think this book, in a, in a way, has been a few years in the making because I, a lot of what... I ended up writing, especially in the long-form essays in the first part of the book, were things I tried to think about, interrogate, and try and make sense of. And I think the puzzle was only complete when I think I completed the manuscript. Um, because in a way now it makes me look at that environment with new eyes. I mean, I was in the Eastern Cape about you know, a week ago. And everywhere I go now, themes that are in the book are just popping up. You know. Um, in different parts of that particular province. Um, and I'm interested in it not just because I come from there, but I'm interested in how its heterogeneity gives us an insight into our unique brand of capitalist accumulation in South Africa. And unique, you know, even that has its own limitations, but also our, what I call, world-beating levels of inequality and unemployment. Um, there are countries in the world that are much poorer than South Africa, but that have much higher levels of um, economic participation than South Africa. Now, you can't explain that within the toolkit of neoclassical economics. You're going to have to go to your history. You're going to have to go to the archive. You're going to have to go you know, to, to, to the historic and oral archive of our people um, you know, from an economic and even a political perspective to be able to uncover how policy, that, that, that's not divine action. That was the outcome of intentional policy to take away the economic and livelihood alternatives of African people so that they can come to the mill, to the farm, to the factory out of a desperation that allows you to pay them even sub-subsistence wages. 
And that's how the system accumulates. That's how its profit motive accumulates over space and time. And I say that's the foundational habit. And it's a habit, you know, we are yet to break out of. It's a habit, um, you know, um, to which we are prone to recurrent relapse. And I think the current moment we're in now, um, with austerity, with, you know, uh, um, you know, struggles around, for instance, the national minimum wage and how capital is responding to that, um, are indicative of the fact that those old ghosts do not rest. Uh, the sense that you can still accumulate um, on the basis of the South African formation being one that shifts all the costs of creating successive generations of the workforce to the township, to the village. Uh, and capital has no, you know, capital externalizes that cost um, in order to accumulate and to maximize profit. But uh, in a sense, what it does is create multi-generational psychosocial and economic trauma. Absolutely. And on that note, um, later in part one, um, you've got this interesting essay on Kaundenzumtu. Um, yeah, and you talk about how in the present economy, the way to overcome um, some of those psychosocial and economic um, mm. afflictions is through consumption. So we almost try, uh, particularly as people who are racialized as black, to mm. consume our way out of, out of the, the problems into which we've been and the corners into which we've been We've been placed. Firstly, you must be the only person who's ever put Big Zulu into an economics book. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, Kanye, wanna, and Kanye. <laughs> and Kanye, for that matter. For the, I just want to read this, this, this section quickly yeah. for, for the viewers because, my goodness, I never thought I'd see this, but it's just a it's testament to the innovation of this book. So you say, sure, sure. in the music we listen to, Big Zulu's pursuit of Imaleningi, um, a lot of money is not unrelated to the immediate link between such money and immediate consumption. Or what Kanye West in a 2004 song, All Falls Down, suggested was the impulse to buy a lot of clothes when we don't really need them. Um, things we buy to cover up what's inside. Because um, they, they make, made us hate ourselves, hate ourselves and love their wealth. Their wealth. <laughs> <laughs> so like, take us through, um, yeah. take us through that and, and how consumption is working today sure, in a way sure. that kind of uh, hits people's psychosocial sure. uh, situation. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's so interesting, Sizwe. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a hip-hop head, you know, um, and, and I think hip-hop was able to explain a lot of things in my life, uh, especially as a teenager, where what I was learning at home or even learning at school couldn't fill that gap, you know. Uh, but I'm also very conscious that music and popular culture is also able to transmit certain messages that are in line with, I guess, whatever, you know, uh, um, psychosocial compulsions are out there in the society. Um, and so for me, it was about saying, these things are not unrelated. We have to draw the connections between these different things. So, so if I come back to the history, you must remember that, so I grew up in Queenstown. Queenstown is in the Republic of South Africa at the time, um, on the sort of, I would say the eastern side of Queenstown, you have the, the Republic of the Transkei becomes independent in 1976. On the other side, you've got the Siskei, which you know, becomes independent a few years later. So, so in a way, anybody who lives in this sort of uh, little space in Queenstown 
is somebody who is there as a partial citizen or as an exception in the legislation. So you're a Section 10 Bantu. And that's Section 10 of a certain act. I think it was a Bantu Urban Authorities Act or something like that. Um, now, that's the same act that clears the way for the removal of Sophia Town and effectively clearing of the black spaces in the urban or peri-urban parts of, of the South African society. But what it does is that it creates a very visceral attachment between one's legitimacy and citizenship in space and participation in the wage economy. So you can't live in Mlungisi um, if you were born outside of Mlungisi, if you can't prove that you have a pass that's signed by your employer or that you've worked for the same employer for more than 15 years. I think that was what the legislation said. Now that already, at a very deep level, creates in the mindset of the African people this intimate link between participation in the wage economy and the consumption that that allows for and notions of citizenship and worth. And you then get to a paradox of the current moment where you have crisis levels of unemployment even higher than what we had during apartheid in some cases in a society that has the kind of lumpen patriarchy that you see and uh, all of the other issues that come with it where your worth is determined by what you have and what you consume in a society where the majority of people don't have the avenues to be able to get the cash that allows them that kind of consumption. So it creates this societal angst in a way and uh, a very burning contradiction where you've got in a society of mass unemployment a lingering mindset that says you, your worth, your legitimacy and even your citizenship as a person is based on your participation in wage labor and what you can consume. And I argue that in the post-apartheid period, you've had a redistributive project whose distributional consequence hasn't touched on the profit share. And one of the ways that that has occurred is through the functional mechanism of credit. So if you look at credit extension over uh, what are called now in hindsight, you know, the periods of growth in the South African economy, that consumptive-led growth boom that are accompanied the commodity boom around the 2000s where people say, ah, Tabombeke was growing the economy. There's a lot of other conjunctural factors that fit into that. But what it does at the level of the African household is that it creates, in a context of a lack of meaningful economic realignment of the society, it creates this notion of a freedom in consumption. So your freedom now is you are free to go to the same Mr. Price that the madam used to go to uh, that you might not have been allowed to go to. But in a way, it's a freedom that feeds a financializing capitalism under specific conditions in the South African economy and does so in a context where there's a stagnant wage share of national income. We then become shocked. Oh, but the economy was growing, but we became a more unequal society. Well, you became a more unequal society because what happened in that consumptive boom was that it was consumption and a redistribution of resources without touching on the profit share that was in a way funneled through the functional mechanism of credit. And that's why the NCR comes in in 2008, because you start to see this mechanism is running away, but you also see global, globally that finance capitalism reaches a crisis point. Uh, one of many crisis points, of course, but um, in that particular sense, it's a crisis point that intersects with the project of creating a black middle class in the first instance, through procurement, through state hiring decisions, 
it also intersects with this process of the expansion of social security. And you start to see this process where bigger and bigger proportions of household income in the native reserve are, are, are financed through, through social transfers. And I'm saying we've been reckless in, you know, in reckless in not being able to say how do we channel that type of consumption that is facilitated through intentional state policy in ways that reindustrialize our economy. So every month, you know, if you go and watch, um, you know, uh, at a post office or even at a Sasa queue in a mall, if you would do a time lapse there, so, so you know, I like doing this kind of stuff. If you do a time lapse, you would be able to map out that one-way traffic. So I go and stand there at 6 a.m. in the morning. I collect my money uh, at the ATM or whatever. Um, I go straight to ShopRite or Boxer Superstores. In a moment when you know your mainstream food system is run by what I would say in political terms is your class enemy. But you're hungry. So yeah, go and buy. But my issue is that you don't resolve that by saying now, uh, Caesar, go and create another supermarket. Because the market structure will chuck you out as soon as you start. But what you do is you say, let us create a cashless component in the improvement of that grant. So if, if our plan for the next five years is that we want to go to a universal basic income, let's start with a hybrid approach that says, Caesar, you will get a voucher. Uh, say it's 900 rand. You will get a 450 rand voucher as part of this universal basic income. But you can only go and spend it at the municipal market that sources its stuff from the land reform beneficiary, that sources its stuff from the food garden at the back of the church in the community. So that we begin to shift our spaces away from just being spaces, you know, to look after the old and the young and to prepare those who are going to the labor market who come back when they're sick and come back to die. So how do we produce in our own spaces, in these townships and in these uh, rural areas, but you're not going to do that if you don't catalyze that by creating a market for those producers before they even put the first seed in the ground. Mm, mm. No, that's that's fascinating, and and just uh, almost turning the the consumptive tendencies of the of the economy to our own benefit. I mean, if they're going to be there for the foreseeable future, we might as well might as well use them, right? Instead of uh, uh, squandering them. But I think on that, Caesar, there's also mm. a, a a question mark. Uh, and, you know, I, a lot of the people who bought the book, um, I, I would say are elites, you know, uh, people like you and me who are, you know, probably not the atypical type of person who is still in the native reserve. Of course, we touch by it in meaningful ways. Sure, sure. But it's also a criticism of the national aspiration and agenda of this class that has been created. Mm. We don't have one. Mm. So... It's then unsurprising that when somebody goes, they get a tender, they make a killing, the first thing they do is to go to a dealership in Santi. Well, you, you know, know what, you so, know what's, re yeah, what, what's really interesting mm. to me is, is actually the intersection of politics and rap music at that moment, because there are two classes of people who, who aspire to this consumerist lifestyle, right? It's the politicians who are speaking with two mouths, like, a revolutionary rhetoric and then driving what they're driving and all of that. But then they're the rap artists who are like, no, you know what? I'm just going to live. I'm, go I'm going to like speak and live the ideal. And it's really fascinating to me the role that these two figures play in contemporary South Africa with this consumptive economic model. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, for me, even in hip hop, as much 
or as important as the political space, there is this question of a conceptual and uh, ideological integrity. So, so, so being able to, yes, you know, this idea, a lot of people say, you know, ANC, walk left, talk right. Um, or oh, sorry, talk left, walk right. I think that, that, that's the characterization. And I think in the public mindset, there is that perception of leaders in the society, irrespective of the political camp they come from, that a politician or somebody who is a musician or somebody who, you know, is, works around people must be allowed to accumulate in a very crass manner. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know about that because my reading of, of most post-colonial experiences is that there is a need, especially in the Asian experience, you see this, the sense of a generational sacrifice at the point of transition. Now, sacrifice insofar as saying there must be certain societally placed limits to accumulation and the consumption of that accumulation. Now, people might say, ah, but now you're curtailing our freedom to spend whatever. Yeah, that's fine. Go spend whatever. But it can't be that that is left to market forces alone to determine. Because what they're going to do, as I do argue in the case of Lewis, uh, the furniture store, is to create more and more opportunities for the merchandise to fly off the showroom. And if that means they're going to use credit, if that means they're going to blaze it up on your you know, uh, speakers, on your smartphone, they're going to do it. Um, and I think the big question is how do you then, in meaningful ways, um, be able to direct the growth of that type of consumptive class? Uh, you know, the Chinese make a very interesting case in this. I mean, there's a growing segment of luxury consumers in China. But those luxury consumers will not be hegemonic in China because the type of economic system in China places very clear political limits to the expansion of the market. That's why they say they have a socialist system with certain types of capitalist characteristics because socialism is a transitional program to communism, if that's what people are interested in. But socialism also implies the existence of market forces under certain conditions. And in this country, that's been, you know, the, in a way, that's been the, you know, the, the holy cow. You, you can't touch market forces. So when the competition authorities implement the law uh, and they say Burger King, you can't sell Grand Parade steaks in Burger King if there's no black people involved, the people get scared. Oh, you want a, a command economy? Well, we want an economy that in meaningful ways ensures that people's opportunities to survive are not linked by whatever value a marketplace ascribes to them. That's what we want. Mm. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Sure, sure. So, so, yeah, man, I, I had an opportunity in 2019, um, you know, so Innovate, I think there's a group called Innovate and Investec, 
have these trips they take entrepreneurs on. So I, I'm also, aside from being a broadcaster and a sort of economist and an entrepreneur as well, I run my own uh, business and have been doing so for the last five years or so. So I had this chance to go to Bangalore. And I'd been following, I mean, the emergence of the di digital economy um, and the role, for instance, that Aspas played uh, in that, not just here at home, but even in places like India. Um, and it was a great opportunity because what it did was to allow me to analyze the political undercurrents of that post-colonial society, which are very similar to ours here, I mean, I must say. I mean, if you think about, you know, the Indian National Congress as a center-left, turning into a social democratic and then later neoliberal type of political formation, um, a lot of the dissatisfaction in India around that political project and the dynasty politics that that has uncovered um, was in many ways an out, was outpoured in reaction, so reactionary politics. So if you look at the type of nationalism of the uh, BJP, which Narendra Modi leads now, you become very clear that this is not a progressive type of nationalism uh, or a nationalism of the oppressed that has an internationalist outlook and links to the global south. It's not that type of politics. It's more a Trump-esque you know, type of nationalist project. Now, you think about that, and we were there at the time when the elections were happening. So, so you can imagine, I mean, uh, uh, this is a very interesting time, very charged political environment. But we then go to anything from film studios to Flipkart, which was at some stage owned by Naspers, uh, and they sold it which has become now one of the biggest e-commerce platforms in that country. Um, and towards the tail end of the trip, I mean, one thing became very apparent, and it should have been apparent much earlier. The rise of all of these massive digital entities, some of whom didn't even have offices, but were turning over you know, mind-boggling amounts of money, or were working in very small spaces with a remote workforce. This is before COVID. Was that... All of this would not have been possible if it wasn't for the ubiquitous access to data. So somebody had created a model where they made smartphones accessible. They then made data accessible, like a gig for seven rand or something like that, you know, uh, I think at the time. And what you ended up having was a system where an entire economy was catalyzed because there were low barriers to entry into accessing digital services. So when we went to Flipkart, Flipkart was able to tell us that they were running, you know, 50 million uh, users on their platform daily. And of that, over 50% of those were coming from rural India. So what you end up having to do is to now create an entire uh, freight and logistics framework that leapfrogs the creation of roads in order to get that stuff to, to the consumer. And what I'm trying to argue in the paper where I make these comparisons is that we, we have the, the perfect storm in this country. We, we've got a double whammy of, of interests. So on the one hand, you've got a very oligopolistic um, telecom sector, main players who've made all the investments in capital, who effectively own and corner the market. You then also have a, a regulatory framework that in many ways um, is yet still to catch up with how technology changes, even how you do regulation. So this idea that you can run a bill through parliament uh, and hope for three years maybe that you'll get something at the end doesn't lend itself to the pace of change of 
exponential in lead technologies. And you're then stuck in the middle of that as the consumer. So one of the ways that, in a practical sense, and maybe this might come up in, in the next book, is that we, we then decided to, to go and get a license from Ikasa in 2019. And we asked Ikasa for a license for one of the districts there in the Eastern Cape. And we said, what would it mean for us to create Wi-Fi hotspots in this area where people are buying one gigabyte of data for more than 100 rand? And we then flipped that on it and said, here is a component of Wi-Fi that's free. And here's a component where you can get a token for 10 rand for one gigabyte. Will this in any way lead to downward pressure, as the economic training would say, on the costs of data? So it goes back to the same reservation wage argument. If you create an alternative, in many ways you, you bring downward pressure on those wages. Um, and in the case of wages, it's the other way around. So if you create an alternative, people will ask for higher entry-level wages. And similarly here, we're arguing that if you can place that downward pressure on you know, the price of a 500 megabytes or a gigabyte of data, will that over time change the pricing behavior and the accessibility of some of these things? Because we are interested in not only the digital, but the real economy outcomes of that. The person who now had a Bucky, who now is interested in a courier operation, uh, rather than, you know, making that Bucky stand in the sun the whole time while it depreciates. Those are the types of very practical economic things that we're interested in. And as we learn, there's a process of then feeding that into the policy process. And I think that for me is the mark of an experimental and developmental state. If you are interested in saying, what if we did this? What would it mean for the configuration of market relations in that society? Uh, and, and, and I think as a generation, w we have to be interested in being those people in how we exercise power, how we exercise influence. Uh, that says, let's take this risk. Uh, in what we'll lose, we'll probably gain in what we've learned. So, um, Ayabonga, thanks so much for uh, sharing your insights on SMWX. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, those who are members of this channel will be able to uh, watch some of our further bonus content. Um, but we really thank you for coming on SMWX and uh, sharing your insights. Yeah, man, Cesar, thanks a lot. And, and uh, you know, long may the great work that you do continue. Um, and yeah, man, I think you, you're doing great work and you continue to inspire us to push ourselves and to think in very meaningful ways about how we solve all of the things we see around us. Appreciate that, bro.